Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Thanks for joining RGA's The Four A's and Adweek's Beyond the Pledge podcast series, where we hold tough and honest conversations on equity, diversity, and inclusion. We tear down myths and discuss how we can hold brands and agencies accountable. I'm your Beyond the Pledge series host, Jai Tedeschi. 2020 Black Lives Matter protests fueled a drive for change in corporate America, where discussing diversity, equity, and inclusion was no longer a topic that was brushed aside. Companies quickly reacted by updating their policies and practices, with some releasing diversity numbers in a bid for transparency. Eight months out from the death of George Floyd, there is still a lot to be done to achieve permanent racial equity. To kick off the series, I'm joined by 4A's EVP, Talent, Equity and Inclusion, Simon Fenwick. Simon has spent his career helping to push the creative industry as a whole working from within companies and trade organizations like the 4As to not only be more diverse and inclusive, but to also walk the talk of creating equity, transforming processes, systems, and practices. Welcome, Simon. Thank you, Jai. And before I start, congratulations on your new role. So it's so exciting to have you as part of the broader E-D-I-D-E-I family. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. That's appreciated. You're welcome. I'm super excited to be here and, and have this, this really important conversation with you. Excellent. I'm excited too. Let's kick this off. So, so prior to 2020, like, how would you say the conversation around equity, diversity and inclusion has shifted? Like, what are a few of the main differences that you've noticed within the industry? It's a really big question. I think there's been some fundamental shifts this year. And I think, you know, the biggest ones are looking at what hasn't worked and why it hasn't worked. And I think prior to this year or prior to the last eight months, a lot of DE&I focus was really around the diversity piece, so the representation piece. So it was sort of focused on the numbers. And we've talked, there's a lot of ways you can make numbers look a lot better than they actually are. And so I think this year there's been a focus on um, not just the numbers, but how those numbers represented in the levels of the organization, across the roles of the organization. And I think that's been a big, big difference this year. I think there's been also this sort of move from, and I hate to say this, but this move from DEI really just being about education and events to being about, and I love the way you put this, around sort of systems and process and on impact. And so it's more now about, the conversation is more now about 
what are the business outcomes from driving more equity and diversity in the organization versus how do we make people who are diverse in the organization feel good about being here because we run some events for Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month or Pride Month. And so not that there's anything wrong with that. And it's really important that we still continue to do that and amplify those voices. But this much bigger focus on all aspects of the talent pipeline and the, the ecosystem and how DEI is really everyone's responsibility, not just a few people's responsibility. Yeah, I love I love how you've said that because exactly that. Being focused on diversity, equity, inclusion is more than just celebrating Black History Month or being involved in Pride. It's about the organization and the fabrics of the organization and your processes is are they inclusive? So that's that's like awesome. And I think what's interesting as well is as we talk about equity, a lot of people refer to DEI as diversity, equity and inclusion. And at RGA we say equity, diversity and inclusion. So EDI. And we've taken this approach because we feel that it's important to put equity at the forefront. And I find that when you focus on diversity, it becomes a talent problem. It becomes numbers. It becomes about quotas. And then when you speak about equity, you're forced to look internally into the organization and think, what are we doing to support and promote and nurture the talent that already exists within the organization. You can't turn around and use an excuse of, we don't have the talent pipeline, we don't have diversity in the industry, we don't have this talent to bring into our agency. You have to think about what are you doing for the people internally. I'd love to hear your thoughts about focusing on equity and how it changes that narrative. Yes, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the industry, and this is probably a pre-2020 thing too, was sort of about equality. And so the talk was, you know, equality. And a lot of people don't understand that equality and equity are two completely different things. And Absolutely. so I love that perspective that you have because we talked about this. To me, DEI, EDI is about equity and belonging. And diversity and inclusion fall between those two. And if you don't have equity in your organization, that fairness across the organization, you're never going to achieve diversity, the diversity numbers you want, because diversity is about representation. And you're never going to get inclusion because people are never going to feel included if they're not treated fairly. And so, you know, I think for me, it's sort of this approach around how do you drive that equity? And for me, I, I sort of came up with like a lead, I call it lead. So it's about, you know, leadership accountability. So Equity comes from leaders actually standing up and saying, I don't have an equitable business. And that is both invisible equity and visible equity, as we've talked about. It's about education. Is there the same opportunity for people who haven't had the opportunities in the organization perhaps to have a mentor or have a sponsor, which is a form of education? It's about that accountability. So holding everyone accountable for if I'm going to hire someone or if I'm going to promote somebody, I'm going to right-size them and make sure that they're paid the same as their counterparts. And if that means somebody gets a 50% pay rise versus a 20% pay rise, then so be it. But that should happen. And I think it's around sort of that development piece, like how are you looking at performance? How are you looking at promotion? And equity is, the easy part is pay equity or not so easy, but supposedly the easy part, the painful part is that. But then it's about the 
process and the practices that you have to make sure that that opportunity to climb that ladder is exactly the same for every single person in the organization. I love that you talked about equity and equality are not the same things because we already know that we're in this position because there hasn't been equal treatment. So now there's this disparity and this delta in sort of progression. If we did treat everyone the same way, the delta would be the same and we won't be getting towards equity. And sometimes I feel like there's this constant push and need to explain that fairness doesn't necessarily mean being equal in some aspects because we have that delta. We're going to have to do something to kind of bring that closer together. Totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I think that the thing around equity and, you know, sort of talk about what I mean by belonging, but I think the thing with equity that people forget about is equity is saying if a black woman is coming into the organization as a new, as a new starter and a white man is coming in, in 20 years time, both of them should be at the same, have had the same opportunities and be at the same level where they can compete for the same job. What we have today is we have a situation where the numbers tell the story and we recently did a diversity survey where you are four and a half thousand times more likely to make CEO as a white man than you are as a black woman. And so that is all you need to know about equity. That says that the systems that we have created and the systems that we've built around our businesses don't treat both those individuals the same. They may have the same education. They may have the same background. They may have come from the same city. They may even have been born in the same hospital. But purely because of the color of their skin and their ethnicity, they're treated completely differently. And the opportunities are completely different. And so I think that's where the equity conversation is whenever anyone says to me, well, you know, it's a really hard thing to overcome. It's not. And until we look at equity that way and through that lens, we're never going to break down systemic organizational racism, right? And people kind of look at me when I say that and say, that's huge. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but it is a, a lot of work, but it's not impossible work. And I think that's the thing that always frustrates me is when I hear people say it's too hard or I don't know where to start. It's very easy. Just treat people fairly. And, you know, and I think then you get to that belonging piece. Like you belong somewhere when you know that your work is appreciated, when you know that your personality and your authenticity is appreciated. I feel like I'm rattling on, but, you know. No, I, I think... That stat just always floors me because it's scary to think that four and a half times less likely to be able to progress at that level and to start your career off with that on your back is very difficult. And it just lets me start to think of, so why is that? There's no one thing. There's not one person who's biased that just happens to not promote the person in a certain period of time. It's everything from how we cast our projects, what we deem to be professional, who we know and network with. So it's like there's so many rules of engagement that have been laid out to us that we have to then go in and break in order to level that playing field that it does seem like a mammoth task. And I totally think it is doable 
And I feel like these equity measures are so critical and they have to be so widespread throughout an organization in order to catch all of these elements that are preventing this bias or preventing fair treatment for different groups. Because this is not just a a talent problem. It's not just about, you know, who we can bring into the organization and the funnel or how we're interviewing. It's once you have that person inside the organization, what barriers are they facing from progression and to excel? We talk about it being as a black woman or a person of color, you have to be two times, 10 times, 10,000 times, you know, better than the next person. Like this stat goes to show that actually you can't just be 10 times better. You know, you have to kind of be four and a half times to even like level that playing field. So I think it just speaks to how it's so important to just look beyond talent and think about our processes from an operational and organizational standpoint and what needs to change at that level in order to have an impact at the individual level. I actually think that's probably, and I missed it, is is one of the biggest differences pre-2020 and post-2020. And I think we're going to just call it pre-COVID and post-COVID. And then <laughs> we're just going to refer to everything as pre-COVID and post-COVID. Um, year one, as I want to call it, when it comes to DE&I, um, is I think you sort of hit it on the head when you say the systems are broken and the systems were created by white men. And so the system has been created and the rules of engagement, which often are invisible and often never fully understood, particularly to BIPOC populations or, you know, as an openly gay man to the LGBTQ community. No one's ever sat us down and said, this is how you should act. This is what's expected of you. It's just assumed you will fit in. And so, you know, I feel like we as an industry and as a a species need to kind of pick up the word culture fit and walk to the end of the biggest cliff that we can and drop it over the cliff because culture fit just does not exist. Culture fit is saying, I'm going to make people come into my organization and I'm going to ask them to mold themselves into what I want the organization to look like. And that generally is a replication of me. And so we should be looking at culture ad. We should be saying, I want people different. You know, I think the authenticity piece, which is so interesting to me, this conversation around, you know, we want people who are passionate and authentic and creative. As an industry, those are the words that we use, but we don't really want that. We don't really want you to be your authentic self because heaven forbid we'd have to change our processes to adapt to you. We don't really want you to be passionate because I don't really know what passionate means to you because I grew up differently to you, right? And we use the language that precludes people. So, you know, if you're a woman and you're passionate, then, you know, you're angry. If you're gay and you're passionate, then, you know, you're emotional. And so these words have been developed by people that automatically take equity off the table and say, just because you are a woman or a woman of color and you have an opinion, oh, that's, you know, that's, that can't be accepted. And I think we, as an industry, we really need to take a hard look back at why have all the things we've tried over the last 10 or 15 years 
been moderately successful or not successful at all. Yeah. And, you know, what is the challenge that we face? That's going to help us understand that it isn't about a training program or giving unconscious bias to everyone, training to everyone. That's a moment in time. You're never going to take the bias out of somebody if they still work, to your point, in an environment where all the systems are set up for them to be that way because there's nothing in it for them to change. I'm a gay white man, but I'm still a white man. I know I can proceed if I do the right things and act the right way, but we need to change that process. I totally agree, and I feel that these training programs may have their place, but it's a moment in time, as you say, but also it's you needed the process in order to encourage and maintain any behavioral change that training will give you. So changing a behavior and then having a process that doesn't support that new behavior is difficult. But also knowing that as we change these processes, we're going to need to relearn how to do our jobs. Like you said, it's different to have a group of diverse minds in a room thinking about things in different ways and coming to the table with different cultures and points of view. And you need different techniques to how do you brainstorm? How do you mine that information? How do you sympathize that information is going to be quite different to what you might be used to. And even a job description, what it means to be a CEO, is that what it means to be a white male? Does that job spec currently bend towards or favor a certain gender and race probably does. You know, it, it's kind of, there's so many, it's kind of an unraveling piece where there's so many elements to it, right, which makes it so important. And why do I feel that we have been failing for so long is that, yes, this is people. Yes, we are changing behaviors, but we are, we're basing it on a foundation that has been untouched. The foundation is still the same. We've got really bad soil and we're wondering why our roses won't grow. It's the foundations are, are just, they need to be nourished and we need to go back to the root and heart of the problem and do things from the bottom up because people will change. Our industry changes all the time and people will come and go. And if we don't change the fabric of our industry, we're not going to retain any of that true change, and it's not going to be systemic. You know, I think part of that change and part of that sort of process and system change is we have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And what do I mean by that is, like, as leaders, we have to realise that if we really want to be see change and if we, want, if we want our legacy to be leaders that said we were at the forefront of real change, of real systemic change in the industry, that means getting ourselves uncomfortable and saying, I'm not going to surround myself with the people I've worked with for the last 30 years. Because, you know, if you're in this industry, you may have worked across a number of different organizations, but you pretty much know everybody that's anybody. And so you surround yourself with people that, you know, are like you. We've got to break that down. We've got to say, I can't do that anymore. That is a really hard thing for leaders to do. It's a really hard thing to say, I'm going to let someone else into my space and that somebody else is going to come in and create something different in my space that I'm not going to fully understand. 
And it's okay as a leader or as a, as a CEO or whoever it is in the organization to say, that's actually a great learning experience. And so then yeah. how do you start changing the language you use? How do you start changing the way you interact with different populations? You know, I've, I've often said to a lot of leaders is your comms team should be marketing your communications in the way that you tell your clients to do. You should treat every population in your organization differently. And the same communication doesn't have to go out to everyone broadly. You need to target it and tailor it to those populations. You'll gain more respect and you'll start to build that trust and equity when you say, I understand you and I'm going to make sure I meet your requests and your demands, right? Because they are different to these people over here and to these people over here. And yes, we all need to work together and we all are on the same mission, but how do I make sure that I'm being empathetic and understanding and really talking to you because I'm understanding your problems and those are different. I think that brings to an interesting point when you, when you talk about communication, because there's so much focus on diversity data. And I feel that diversity data is extremely important in transparency, but what about equity? What measures should the industry take to show progress in that area? Is there data that shows equity? I mean, obviously, the easiest way to show equity is pay equity. It's the most painful and organizations run as fast as they can away from it, particularly finance teams. But if you can show transparency around pay equity, that goes a long way to making, and remember when we talk about equity here, we're not talking about the privileged people feeling better about who they are. It's about making the underrepresented groups feel like they're as equal to the people who are privileged, right? And that's, that can sometimes be daunting because, you know, you're, you're retraining a whole group around, we're not taking anything away from you. We're not giving you less opportunity. We're just simply making sure that everybody else is at the same level as you. And so I think pay equity is the first and easiest way to look at it, you know, to measure equity. I think then the second piece that has been overlooked is the performance and promotion process and systems. And I think when you look at performance management systems, historically, they've kind of been embedded in HRIS systems or embedded in some sort of pay system. And they, they don't allow for the human, what I call the human factor, right? So they're based on a set of goals. The goals are the same for everybody. They don't take into account different life experiences or what you have personally going on in your life. And I think we need to re-look re at performance and not measure everyone the same. Measure everyone based on where they're at. Like the best way I can explain it is if you're a working mother, and I think COVID's really proven this, if you're a working mother with little kids, should you have the same set of performance expectations as the person working who's is an empty nester, right? Now, they shouldn't be harder because, and we shouldn't expect those people to work more because they don't have kids, but are the expectations and are the way you're measuring those two people the same? Because right now they are, but they're not, right? And they're both performing 
the same, you know, same job, let's say, and they're both performing really well, but you're going to automatically, because this is human nature, look at the person who's the empty nester who's spending a little bit more time at work because you're forgetting that the mother who goes home has gone home, looked after the kids, put them to bed, and then is working for three hours. But you don't see that. And so ultimately that equitable piece around performance, the performance process is not there. So then the promotions don't happen. So then the leadership doesn't happen. And then the voices aren't in the decision-making rooms and the cycle just keeps going over and over and over. And that was a long answer, but. No, but it's like, I get it. Cause we've got the diversity data and we talk about the equity data being pay equity being one of the, the most visible parts of it. And I know we've talked about this before in that even that data is very much skewed to gender. It doesn't really go down into some of those intersections of what are Asian women being paid in comparison to, you know, a white male, for instance. It's very much the male-female, which tends to be an easier conversation to have are we ready as an industry to delve deeper and start to look at those intersections? I'm always a little befuddled and, and bemused and confused and all those sort of words around having sort of led talent teams around how difficult this conversation is. And, you know, I sort of say, well, okay, if, let's say you're replacing someone. What generally happens is you look for somebody and you're like, well, I'm going to pay exactly what I was paying the person that just left. Right. So besides the fact that that person was probably on that salary for two years and the market's changed, let's say it's a woman of color and that person leaves and you go hire someone. If a candidate comes through the door, I've seen this happen and it's a white male. Oh, well, you know, the market is this. If another woman of color comes in the door, oh, well, that's what the salary was. So that's what we're paying. Why is it so hard to not say, no, this is what the market is. This is what we pay for this role. So we're going to pay everyone for that role. And I think this is the, the challenge is when you look at organizations right now and you say there's a hierarchy, there's Maslow's hierarchy of pay. So you have white men, white women, Asian women, Asian men, women of color or, or black women, black men, Hispanic women, Hispanic men, right? And I'm not sure whether that's the order, but like there is this, you know, it's proven. So we need to, I think, look at the equity piece as if it's too hard to fix, then that says to me, or if you're not prepared to take that, not even a risk, but take that step, you're really saying to your organisation, we don't believe in equity because we don't believe you all deserve to be paid the same amount of money for the same work. Now, how you perform and what you do in that job and whether you deserve to be promoted, that can be more equitable based around you as an individual. But I think we just need to, to be transparent about our pay across the industry. And I don't think individual agencies have to do this. I think as an industry, we need mm. to be transparent and we need to say, there's a reason why the law came in in a number of states recently that says you can't ask somebody what they earn. There's a reason. Yeah. And so we need to be transparent and we need to be able to say to people as they come in for interviews, the salary for that job is X. And 
it's a long answer and I don't know whether I'm answering the question, but I do think that there is this need for us to get out of our minds that, that we can get away with paying people less. The transparency in our diversity data is, is being out there, but we need to kind of start to look at what is the transparency in our pay equity. And I'd like to also add in terms of at RGA, we have an engagement survey every year about how people are feeling. Can you be your authentic self? Are your opinions being heard? Do you feel like you have the same access to opportunities? And we, we publish this data and it's clear there there's the same disparity. And I feel like it shows a measure of equity in a different sort of way. And I have this theory of the delta gap being shorter. If everyone's feeling generally not great or everyone's feeling awesome, that's equity. But if you have one group feeling like they've got full access to opportunities and then another group feeling like they don't have access to opportunities or their voice is not being heard in the same organization, then there is an issue and that's a problem. And we, we found in our own data that there are marginalized groups or you know BIPOC who are not feeling like they are being heard in the same sort of way, which shows that that's an equity measure. And I'd love to see the industry start to show more about and report more on how people are feeling in addition to diversity numbers. I'm going to sort of throw an even um, more basic concept out there, but it's overlooked, is most agencies do exit interviews. Yes. What do they do with that data? Because I have yet to work in an organization that takes that data and turns it into actionable steps to reduce turnover. And then to the equity point, why do people leave? They leave because of their manager or they leave because they don't have opportunity, right? Those are 90% of the time, that's the reason. They don't want to work for the person they're working for or they haven't been given an opportunity. So take out the, the manager piece, right? That's a whole other podcast. But the opportunity is equity. That's all it is. And so when, you know, we talked earlier when you look at, and you know, our numbers from the diversity survey show this, that if you were able, if this industry was able to retain 20% of the BIPOC population working within their organizations right now, their diversity numbers would double overnight. And so the numbers are there. We're, we're a data-driven industry. Like, what more proof do you need that it's equity? People leave and BIPOC and diverse population, underrepresented populations are leaving our industry because they don't see opportunity. They don't see anyone like them and leave. They've been in their job for three years and there have been five other people have been promoted ahead of them. And so that's got nothing to do with the work they are doing. That's got everything to do with equity. Yes, and they, they move to another organisation to get that step up and they stay there for three years and the same thing happens, and then they move on. I love the concept of if you are equitable, and even if we had the same slow trickle in of diverse talent into these agencies, we'd be in a much better place when it comes to diversity. And almost focusing on diversity is kind of, it doesn't help or fix the problem. It's that equity and that retention. I think the exit interviews is important. And I think Data is so important in learning and understanding it. But one thing I've seen as a barrier to some of this information is that we want 
anonymity. We want people to be able to share their sort of thoughts and feelings on something without having to divulge who they are. But if, if there's so few represented in a certain group, you can't possibly share the information because it's very, very easy that it could be attributed to you. I've definitely worked at agencies where I've been the only black person in an office. I can't be anonymous in a survey that asks what race I am or ethnicity I am, you know? So it almost ends up turning around that my voice is, is silenced even more. It can't be expressed because if it was to be expressed in that sort of way, then it's very much singles you out. So I definitely feel we have to kind of figure out better ways of handling the data in order to learn from it and how we can pull information together to, to understand more holistically. So do we look at this at an industry? Yeah. You know, that's kind of radical, but do we look at exit data as an industry and pull that down and look at what those patterns are? Totally. And, and I think, you know, I'll just take a step back before I sort of answer that question to the, to the voice, the speaking voice. And, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about COVID and obviously the George Floyd murder and what's happened subsequently is I do actually think there is a groundswell across our industry led by 600 and Rising of Black talent saying, we've had enough. We are tired of being underheard and overlooked, right? And so there is this sort of groundswell around our perspective matters. And so I do think that there's a movement. And I think how you overcome that and part of equity is building strong allyship and action. You have to build a culture where people understand what allyship is. If you're going to be a true ally, you've got to be able to stand up in the good times and in the bad times. And I think to the equity piece, it's around how do we build allyship so that you as the only black woman in the organization don't ever feel like you can't be honest in a survey response because I'm going to have your back. And I'm going to make sure that nobody is going to retaliate. And I'm going to make sure that what you put down there is going to be heard because I'm standing alongside you and you're my equal and you're somebody that I believe wholeheartedly that what is good for me is good for you. And I think that is something I'm hearing a lot across the industry right now is how do we build not just allyship programs, but allyship in action? How do we make sure that people can feel that they belong and have support. And actually, somebody said to me a few months ago, they said, how would it be when all the protests were happening? If we were, had been in our offices, what would it have been like to our organisations for leaders to have walked into the reception and found all their black employees standing in the reception with pickets for a day? How quickly would our industry have changed or see change? Imagine that. Think about the point that you get to where you are like, so if the only way that I can make this change is to protest, I would hesitate to say a lot of support would come to those employees. But it's never been brought to the forefront and it's never been discussed openly because no one's known how to have those honest, open conversations. Would you say or do you feel like clients have somewhat done that? Clients have turned around? semi in protest to say you know we have expectations and do they have the right to do that i'd love to hear your opinion on that 
Yeah, I mean, certainly talking across the industry, I think more and more clients are going, if they're not doing it now, are going to be building into their RFPs or their process. Show me the diversity and the equity within your business. And I think that they're going to come to a point where they're going to be like, like show me, you know, I'm paying for these people because we work on an FTE basis, right? I want to see that you're paying your females and males the same. I want to see that your all your ethnic populations are all paid the same. I think it's coming to that. Transparency in that area, I think, is coming. I think that we hold accountability and we need to do that. And I think the days of bringing the one, and I'm going to just say it, the one black person into all the, all the sales pitch meetings, I think those days are gone. And I actually, I know some really senior people who are like, I no longer will do that. And they sit on executive teams and they're like, I'm just not doing it anymore. You need to find somebody else. But I think as an industry, we need to hold our clients accountable as well. And I think this, this is where leadership, I think, can play a really big role in helping to drive equity within their organizations, but also with clients. And I think they need to say to clients, we'll build a diverse team, but we want to work with a diverse team. And we want to know that if we create great work for you, that is inclusive, that is is equitable for everyone, that it's being reviewed at your end in the same way. And so is there accountability and how do we, you know, we never want to walk away from business, but I think we've got to be holding clients accountable too to say it goes both ways. And if a client doesn't have that equity or diversity piece within their business, then I think we've got to sort of lead and say, well, you know, here's where you're missing out on opportunities or revenue. And this is what we're going to do from a, from a product or a, a creative perspective. And we're going to do that by these people and lead clients to that change. I, I speak to a lot of independent agencies outside of the big cities and their biggest struggle often in more conservative areas is, well, I don't want to upset my client and I don't know what to say with my client because they're very conservative they're probably sitting on the opposite side saying, oh, I don't know how to ask because I don't really know and how do I do that? And so I think we have to have that responsibility of saying this is how you should approach diversity and equity in the work we're doing and in how you you sell your product, let's say. Absolutely. And I think we've talked about how important equity is and how equity can lead to Diversity. If you're equitable, you're going to get the diversity numbers. If you're inclusive, people will feel like they can belong and how key it is to focus on that area. I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the key organizational and operational systems to put in place in order to do that. And I think this is super interesting because once you start to realize that how important equity is, you then need to think about, okay, how how do we go about starting to make some of these changes? But also, how do we keep that momentum like we talked about? How do we ensure that this is something that we continually focus on and it isn't just a moment in time? We like to say, RGA, let's make turn this, this moment into a movement. And RGA's Make Change Framework is about creating an equitable environment at RGA. And... You know, it's something we've published online for everyone to see. But I think what's important about that is a framework is only as good as how it's implemented. 
it's, you know, it could be a very beautiful and can sit on paper, but until you operationalize and implement it, it's not really going to do anything for equity. So one of the key things that I wanted to make sure that we did was how do we help every office within RGA set up their initiatives, have a look at their data, start to identify areas where they could be more equitable, figure out programs to make progress towards that and share that not only with the office, but share it in a way that you would do any sort of business level initiative. You know, you share out your financial data to the chief operating officer and the CEO. You should be doing the same with your programs when it comes to equity. So ensuring that we have those same measures, we have targets and an expectation for you to be more equitable, more profitable, you know, and, and all of those sort of business measures. And we're going to look at this in a business context and have the same, the same sort of magnetism on it as we would do on your financial performance. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this and some of the things that the four A's are doing to like systematize some of this organizational systems. I love the fact that you, you, you throw these big questions that could take me like three hours to answer. Um, I love it. Um, where do you want to start? Uh, so I, sort of, I think one of the things that is really important that we, we really need to get right and we need to get right quickly is the only way change is going to happen is for leaders to take responsibility for that change and to lead from the front. And so they can't hire someone as an equity, diversity and inclusion person and say, fix the problem for me. They can't look to their talent teams anymore and say, fix the problem for me. They've actually got to drive the change. And one of the things that I do really respect about RGA, um, and we've talked about this in the past, is you have brought to the table all the employees. You've said everybody has a responsibility in this. I think the moment in time, and IPG has done this, Michael Roth has done this, is I think you have to tie performance compensation to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So every leader should have part of their total package tied to diversity numbers, tied to inclusion metrics, and tied to equity. And so if you are going to really see change, the best way to do that is unfortunately hit them where it hurts most. This isn't an optional thing. You have to get on board with this. I think the second thing that is really important when it comes to that leadership responsibility is sort of saying, how do you change the systems within the organization? And, you know, there's a lot of talk right now around, well, you know, we'll, we'll update our technology or we'll take, we'll take bias out of our job descriptions and we'll build in, you know, we'll build in the tools to be able to do that. And I'm going to go back to something you said a way, way back about job descriptions is you can take all the bias and you can take all of the, you can deconstruct a job description, but fundamentally the job description is still the job description. And so I think it's even things like, and again, I hope I'm answering the question or giving some suggestions is what is a job description? I don't know about you, my job description coming in here was like 14 pages long. And I got to the third page and I turned around to Muller and I said to her, well, I've kind of read three pages of it and I know I can do it. So, you know, my expectation is I can do the rest of it, but I'm really not going to read it because you're probably not going to judge me on or, or measure me on any of that anyway. And sure enough, like that 14 pages can be condensed into like one or two. I think we need to be reimagining how we're finding talent. Where are we finding talent? How are we actually interviewing them? 
entry level, sure, we need some of the skills there. But as you progress through the organization, like I don't need to know whether you know how to add two plus two or whether you can spell the word dictionary. I'm assuming you can do that because you've got to a certain point in your career. Not I sure about spelling the word dictionary. It's a big one. <laughs> well, you know, we have spell check these days, so that makes it easier. But I think, you know, we need to be reimagining in those processes around as a creative industry, I'm hiring you as an individual. I'm assuming you have the skills, right? So I want to know what are you going to bring to the table that is different to what I currently have? I think we should be looking at the way that we, the way that we onboard people. And so the onboarding process needs to change. As an industry, we kind of hire people, we throw them in a desk, we give them a computer and we say, there's an hour's training, good luck, right? We need an onboarding process that's inclusive, an onboarding process that is about not just learning about the industry or the organization, I mean, but learning about what it means to work in that organization. I think we need to reimagine what business resource groups or employee resource groups mean. I think they play a huge role in the success, the business success of the organization. And it staggers me why more and more organizations don't go to their BRGs or their ERGs, whichever you call it, when they've got pitches and say, you know, there's a part of the pitch they want to aim at a target audience that's Hispanic, Latinx. You're our experts. You represent the organization. What do you think, right? So many organizations don't do that. So I think there's all these systems in place and processes in place and tools that we need to change. I think we should, as an industry, re-look, as I mentioned earlier, at our performance tools. We should be reimagining what compensation means. Why do we only recognize and reward the senior people in our organization and not the junior people with bonuses? What is the term which we have in our industry broadly around discretionary bonus? Discretionary bonus says to me, friend bonus. So I'm going to give the bonus to the person that I have most in common with that I think is really good. So we need to look at that process. And I think we can learn a lot from industries like the tech sector who have taken the bias out of performance management, who actually dedicate like two days every six months where all managers come together in departments and talk about everyone in their organization from the the receptionist all the way through to their most senior people. And everyone in that room agrees, does that person deserve a bonus? Does that person deserve to be promoted? It's two days out of your life. And we constantly hear, I don't have time for that, right? I don't have time. I don't have time to do a review. I don't have time to write up again. So all these processes all play into this structure that is designed for us to hire the same people that we know are going to succeed because we built a system that makes them succeed. I totally agree, Simon. And, you know, we're on the same page with a lot of these things. And I think that with all of these measures, there needs to be shared accountability. And it needs to be it needs to be moved away from just the talent partners and the talent teams to MD. This is my expectation of you financially and from an equity, diversity, inclusion point of view and from a client point of view, it should be as dominant 
um, and have the same sort of weight as it does those other factors because everyone knows what's expected of them from a financial point of view. And you can see as the end of the quarter nears, rushing to make sure everything's in place to present back where you are and to be working towards that final submission that you put together the previous year of where you want to be financially. And I want us to do the same thing when it comes to equity. Where are we trying to get to at the end of 2021? And what measures do we have to take, you know, at each quarter to get us closer to there? And how are you reporting back? And how are we, if we're not on track, what are we doing to kind of like pivot and ensure that we can get on track? And what what is our prize at the end of the day? You know, in terms of, as you say, those like bonuses, what is my bonus if I make a percentage margin? What is my bonus if I have an equitable workforce, if my work is is more diverse in thinking? I would love to shift it that way and get the focus more in the same line as we would do for some of these so business practices would be, I think, a great step forward. Absolutely. And I think an experience I had a number of years ago was in a performance process and I was it was a senior leader and I was sitting in the room with the executive and, you know, this person had had like 62% turnover in their team in the year, but had delivered amazing financial points out of the client. And my conversation at that time, this was about six years ago, was, so why are you rewarding this leader? Well, because look at all the revenue. And I said, they've lost 62% of their team in the last 12 months, which tells that you that they don't know how to manage a team. So either hire someone to manage the team that reports to this person or don't reward them because you're rewarding them for bad behavior. And you know that was broad, but I, I think that concept of I'm going to reward you on retention, I'm going to reward you on diversity, hiring. And so let's start looking at the organizationally and say, you know, we have the data to break down and say, well, we know by department what our diversity looks like. So instead of taking a scattergun approach and saying we just need to hire more BIPOC people, why don't we say our creative department is really poor, but our account managed department is really good. So let's set some goals in our creative department that it might look different to our project management or our account management team, right? Because we may need more BIPOC people and creative, but we might need more females in our account. So let's build a program that says we're not going to hire someone until we've had two females on the slate until we've had two BIPOC people on the slate of candidates. And you, Mr. or Miss or manager, are not going to get rewarded if you can't show me that you have interviewed that slate of candidates. We have to sort of work out a way that where we stop rushing to judgment and, you know, we, it's this urgency just totally, completely fill jobs, right? And... And so we haven't also done any work around pipeline. We haven't built a good pipeline. We don't understand what pipelining is because we're constantly catching our breath. I sort of call it, I say it's like a toddler when you throw them in the water the first time and there's kids bobbing up and down and they're like not knowing what to do. That's what our industry's doing. We're just doing this. Or every year we're like bobbing, catching some breath, falling below the water, coming back up. And we don't have time to say everybody's job and everyone needs to be invested in the talent pipeline. And I think Michael Roth at IBG, you know, a few years ago sort of put a target on leaders to say, you need to build relationships 
with senior people of colour in the industry. And you need to, whether it's coffee or lunch or network with them, and we need more of that. That leads great onto a question. I think that's kind of what you just said about that making those connections and networking, because whether we like it or not, networking is ex- extremely important in our industry. And it's probably been some of the reasons why we are in the position that we're in because we have such closed networks. But in addition to networking, what advice would you give to a company that is at the beginning of their journey to create a working environment that is equitable and inclusive for the BIPOC community? And uh, what are a few actionable steps you think they can take? I think the first steps they should take is make sure that their policies don't have bias in them. Make sure that they have looked at equity across their policies. I think the second thing that if they haven't got any people of colour in the organisation, then look at their recruiting process. Look at who's doing the recruiting for them. Look at the questions that they're asking. Look at the job descriptions. Look at the way that they're funneling those people through the process. And be prepared to answer the questions about why don't you have any people of colour in your organisation? Why was I not interviewed by someone that looks like I mean, that goes for any organization. So I think prepare yourself for the basics. Don't try and take on everything all at once because you're not going to, you don't have all the answers because you haven't experienced what you need to experience. I do think that, you know, there are things where you can frame the organization and, you know, the workplace alignment certification we have at Corey's is great for organizations where everyone can start speaking a common language and actually understand what points of difference are understand what it is to be different across those points of difference. And so I think that that is from an organization that hasn't had a lot of experience, start with the basics and don't be afraid to ask. Like, don't be afraid to ask. You mentioned networking and the kind of push for leaders to get to know, you know, senior black leaders or BIPOC leaders in other sort of industries or agencies to build that connection. It sounds like that could be a a good first start in the journey also. Here's the challenge with that is, so a couple of years I was at UNCAN and I was standing on the closet and I had a senior leader in the industry come up to me and say, hey, Simon, I've known you for a long time. When we get back to New York, literally, this is what they said, could you come to me with a list of senior black leaders because I want to hire more black people in my leadership team. So hats off, identified the problem, said they needed to do it. I looked at this person who I've known for a long time and I said, well, actually, you know as well as I do that those people don't exist. I could probably tell you 10 people that I know of that would fit what you're looking for, but I know they're not going to leave their agency. Like, they're just not going to. And then I looked around the room, it was at this person's venue, and I looked around and I said, well, you know, so how many people of colour did you bring to PAN this year? And there, there wasn't an answer. And I said, because your future leaders and the people you need in that team are in your business right now. You just don't know them because their voice isn't being amplified. And so I sort of say to people, the leaders about networking, it's like, stop looking outside because, you know, we don't hire from outside our industry because, you know, you've got to have certain experience. So stop trying to network out externally with that one person who works at a competitor agency. Start networking with your employees. Start networking with those, and this is what the Vanguard program with the 4As is sort of trying to do, is get to know those mid-level BIPOC employees. They're your future leaders. Put a three-year plan in place. Talk to them and say, I'm going to take you on the journey and I'm going to commit to you 
I'm going to build you a pathway to leadership. And that may take two years. It may take five years. Don't wait for them to leave. Don't wait for them to be sitting there and saying, I don't see a future. And then hearing a group of leaders stand up in front of the organization and say, we're really doing everything we can to increase diversity at the executive leadership level. Because what you're saying to those people is there's no equity here because you're going to try and find the needle in the haystack because that's literally what it is when I'm sitting right in front of you. I've been working for you for 10 years, right? You don't know me. You've never met me because you've never taken the time to get to know me. And so to me, the networking question is right in front of leaders' faces right now. They just need to open their eyes. I love that. I think listening, and if there's no one to listen to within your organization, go out there and listen and learn. And instead of trying to find someone to help you find that person, yes, look within, but also do some of the work yourself. It's not an easy job, but it's something that you should take on to yourself and go out. I think to that point too is, you know, a lot of organizations are looking at mentorship and sponsorship programs. I would sort of say, understand that those two things are are very different. Um, Mm -hmm. And the role of a CEO should really be a sponsor, not really a mentor, because, you know, the sponsor takes is more informal, but should be your advocate. But I constantly hear, I don't know that I have the time. And I'm like, well, if you don't have the time to spend one hour a month, one hour a month with a diverse employee, to get to know them, to become their advocate, then what are you doing? It's one hour, 12 Absolutely. hours a year, right? This should no longer be, be a, a nice to have or voluntary thing. It's, it's mandatory. It's essential. In closing, sadly, but lastly, Simon, uh, can you share your thoughts on whether or not companies should begin adapting equity and diversity management as a business model and not only part of their company values? Oh, I mean, to me, (laughs) I mean, it's the imperative. Like equity is the heart of the entire employee journey. And if organizations don't see equity, diversity and inclusion, so you've got me saying a bit of that. Oh, yay. If organizations are not looking at equity, diversity, and inclusion at the heart of what their organization is, as a people-run industry, our assets are our people, nothing else. And if that's not at the core of every single thing, the decision they make, then they're not going to succeed. Because whether they like it or whether they don't, by 2030, half this country's population are going to be uh, not white. By 2050, I think it's 65% of this country. So the future is knocking them on the head. You either get out in front of it now or you get caught behind. And we all know what happened to, you know, we all know Xerox and we all know what happened to camera companies because they didn't keep up with technology. The same can be said for our industry is you have to drive every decision you make based on is it equitable, is it including diversity, and does it provide inclusion for every single person in the organization? And that's I even strongly recommend to agencies, go back to the drawing board. Go back to what is your mission, vision, and values. And don't have an executive team set that out. Meet as an organization. Create a culture roadmap as an organization. Ask everyone to participate in that because you will end up with a richer, 
more vibrant and stronger mission, vision, and values than you've ever had before. I love that. And it's definitely something we've been doing at RGA in terms of making sure that your your mission and your values represent the organization as a whole and having that, you know, eclectic mix of people come together from multiple levels and discipline, figure out what that is. And to design for a more human future being our values, we have no choice but to change our business model. I feel like the two are just so closely aligned that it forces you to have to refocus and say, okay, so this is our new values. What does that mean? And what do we need to change in our business in order to live up to those values? I also think there's a there's an opportunity here for the industry to reclaim the pricing model with clients because we've kind of lost that ground. I think there's a moment here to actually say, in order for us to do what we want to do and to help you and to lead this way, we need to relook at what that pricing model looks like because we're no longer going to pay people poorly. We're no longer going to fill seats just because we have to have them filled because you know the work you're piling the work onto us. So we need a bench, for instance. You know, we need a bench of people that can step in because we want to make the right hires, not the fastest hire. And that means we're going to get the most inclusive, we're going to get the most diverse population. And guess what, Mr. or Miss Client, like that's going to cost more money. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like, like we've got to be bold, I think, in the way we, we approach this. We can't sort of take a back seat and still be pushed around a little bit. Thanks for joining me, Simon. Social justice movements have gained traction around the world last year, and we have a moment right now to support the movement with real change. But this won't happen overnight. We need to keep moving forward, talking about the systemic issues rooted in our culture and organizations to lay the foundations to create lasting change. In the next podcast, I'll be joined by Natasha Bowman, Performance Renew founder and president, to discuss why companies should continuously spotlight systemic injustices within the advertising industry as part of our progress for change. Thank you for joining us.